Hi, this is Mike Livermore, and I'm here with Philip Kellmeyer, the head of the Neuroethics and AI Ethics Lab at the University Medical Center at Freiburg. Um, and today we're going to be talking about some of his work at the interaction of technology and the brain and how it relates to the themes of intelligence and artificial intelligence at the ICA4. Thanks so much for joining me, Philip. Uh, thanks so much, Mike, for having me. It's a great pleasure. So, so maybe just to kind of get us started, um, you know, one question uh, uh, that I that I have for you is, you know, you have a your background is as a as a medical practitioner. You went to medical school, um, and and you were mentioning that you still uh, have a, a practice element of, of your work. What drew you into this area of kind of ethics and legal, kind of the legal side of this interaction of technology and the brain? Yeah, so maybe going back a little bit, even before I started uh, my studies, I was always a little undecided whether I wanted to go into humanities or more sciences. Um, or, and so medicine actually seemed like quite a good um, compromise because it, because it has some scientific elements, but it also has this human um, element uh, that makes it, so, makes it so appealing. And so after school in Germany, you do this um, one year um, civil service um, as an alternative to, to military service. And I did um, actually write, I wrote an ambulance for a year. Um, uh, uh, and that what sort of got me more interested, even more interested in medicine. And so I ended up in medical school. Uh, but pretty early on, I sort of also pursued um, sort of parallel courses in philosophy and political science, history of medicine. So I tried to sort of balance all these um, all these interests sometimes at the expense of my <laughs> my medical studies um, but it uh, but it kept me sort of busy also always reflecting um, on, on these ethical issues and so way back uh, when I was still in medical school I did a couple of um, internships in the in the sort of ethical uh, space so I did an internship with the, with the World Health Organization's ethics unit which is mostly about organ um, transplantation I spent some time in South America with the Pan American Health Organization's ethics unit, um, uh, working on uh, HIV/AIDS and ethics. Um, so it, ethics has always been mm, part of my professional identity uh, and and my interests. And then mm, after I finished medical school, um, I had a very strong interest in in the brain and neuroscience and also sort of the philosophical side of it, uh, philosophy of mind, the self, consciousness, and so forth. And so I pursued. Uh, some research in England at the University of Cambridge, mostly learning how to do uh, neuroimaging, so taking images uh, from the brain to look at brain activity in action. And that got me interested in, in all the neurological uh, conditions that might um, um, affect brain processes. And so I went back to, to Germany to get my, my neurology qualification. And so uh, did a lot of clinical work in the past um, 15 years in neurology, in psychiatry, but like this, this uh, interest in ethics and human rights and how they intersect uh, with science and medicine, that's always been part of my identity and key interest. And so when I moved into the area of, of neurotechnology, so devices that can measure brain activity or even uh, interfere with brain activity through neurostimulation, all these ethical issues that I thought about in other contexts uh, before became uh, very relevant and prevalent again. So uh, issue of identity and self, how neurotechnological devices can interfere uh, with those um, aspects, um, but also 
issues like brain data governance, like what happens if big technology companies now develop consumer-oriented neurotechnologies and use brain data uh, for making uh, data analytics, um, how should we govern access and use um, to these brain data. And so this has been a very fruitful and stimulating period of my sort of professional life because I could finally bring together all those interests um, in neuroscience and clinical aspects, um, but also the ethics um, in this sort of emerging applied ethics field, uh, sometimes called neuroethics, uh, that is pretty much intersectional and looks at exactly those questions uh, from an interdisciplinary perspective. So yeah. I'm quite quite happy to be able to do that at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really wonderful. It's a it's a it's a great path and and it's such a fecund kind of um, area to be to be interested in these days. So yeah, in terms of, of neurotechnology, I mean, some of these <clears throat> the technologies that are available now, I think for many folks, they they seem almost at a at a science fiction level, and and you know. There's, there are always advances. I have a close family member with uh, Parkinson's, mm -hmm. and he has um, a deep brain stimulation device uh, yeah. that's been that he's been off working, you know, that he's had for the last couple of years, and it's mm -hmm. just incredible the um, the clinical benefit that he's that he's gotten out of that. So, um, so one question I just have as someone working in this field is kind of what is the what is the state of these technologies these days my my understanding with the with the deep brain stimulation is it's it's sophisticated but in a way i can kind of understand it right you're kind of targeting an area of the brain for stimulation in order to reduce um you know kind of dampen the 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 the, the tremors essentially that are going on with parkinson's you know how much do we understand what's going on there you know how advanced are these technologies kind of what what is the what is the state of what is the state of the art in in neurotechnology yeah. these days yeah yeah i think tbs deep brain simulation is a very good um um uh, applic uh, applied uh technology to talk about uh, the current state because it's also evolving um as we speak, but it represents um, more or less the state of the art uh, from, from say many decades of, uh, of research. And so the basic idea in deep brain stimulation is that um, you can insert um, electrodes into certain areas of the brain, parts of the brain, and then use um, electrical um, stimulation uh, to stimulate brain cells, neurons, um, uh, uh, and uh, regulate their activity uh, in a certain way. And in Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders, this has basically um, almost been an accidental discovery um, uh, that you could sort of use this uh, electrical stimulation to change, um, um, uh, to affect trauma, to change movement patterns um, in Parkinson's. But it has improved uh, over the last couple of decades and is now highly effective. Uh, and very important treatment method, um, as you say. But in a sense, uh, it's not very uh, sophisticated um, electrophysiologically or, or technolo technologically because it basically can sort of, um, you know, stimulate with different um, uh, different strength and you can either upregulate or downregulate uh, the stimulation, but it is not... Um, adaptive or dynamic or um, smart as one might say maybe uh, today in the sense that it can adapt to changing changing patterns of brain activity in real time and that is um, what is sort of the next frontier uh, for neurotechnology something that is often sometimes also called closed loop 
uh, interaction in that you have real-time measurement of what's going on in the brain and you use algorithms um, to analyze these data and then based on the analysis you can interfere uh, with the brain activity in real time uh, to change it in one way um, or the other. In Parkinson's and other movement disorders it's still the case that um, you pretty much need to observe um, how the stimulation um, affects the clinical symptoms and then the doctor can change the device settings and can stimulate a little bit more or a little bit less depending on the intended effects and the, the unintended effects or the side effects um, of the stimulation. But that's always, you know, that's not as agile and as adaptive as, uh, as one might um, hope for. And so in TBS, in future generations of deep brain stimulation, but also brain-computer interfaces, what people are looking uh, for now is this kind of really close to real-time uh, interactivity. And one promising uh, development on the sort of algorithmic computer science um, side has been the use of uh, machine learning approaches, specifically artificial neural networks, um, deep learning, uh, because it turns out that um, these approaches can really work well um, in, in real time and also um, in a sort of what people call end-to-end -end, uh, fashion in that from the raw measurements of the data all the way to the stimulation you can do it very fast um, in basically an online um, fashion and so what has been elusive for many years, uh, closed loop, um, applications might become a reality um, very soon for very different um, uh, treatment scenarios. So just to make sure that I am understanding what the what a closed loop um, system would look like. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned with Park with with DPS with with Parkinson's, there you know someone's sitting in a doctor's office and and I mean this is my understanding with this family member. It's exactly what happens is they kind of turn it up, turn it down, and see how it affects his tremor. And he's talking to them and he's giving them feedback. And I, I, I guess the idea would be something. Well, tell me if this is if this is the if this is the if this is in the neighborhood. You know, you can imagine. Um, you know, we're, the the clinical situation is someone with epilepsy, and we want to avoid seizures. And there's a, a signature that's associated with kind of a pre-seizure, uh, you know, kind of signal that goes out that the device would be able to detect, and then it would automatically do something, um, stimulation or upregulate or downregulate that would then kind of short circuit the seizure from actually taking place. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, it's exactly the right scenario and that's, uh, that's already um, happening. So there are uh, first prototypes, uh, closed loop simulators for, uh, for epilepsy. So devices that measure uh, brain activity directly from the brain and then if um, seizure-like um, patterns appear uh, or that, 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 that precede um, an, a clinical onset um, of an epileptic seizures, they can intervene um, with electrical stimulation and um, disrupt the brain pattern so that no seizure um, occurs. Uh, the problem in the early prototypes and the first prototypes was um, that they pretty much stimulated most of the time because they were just not good enough in distinguishing um, normal from abnormal or epileptic uh, uh, brain activity. So 90%, 95% of the time the stimulator was on. So you, and, and that's not ideal, like what you would want is, is a system that is you know, highly responsive and very specific in that it only interferes uh, if you have the, the pathological brain, um, brain activity. 
But another good example, I think, uh, that people might might understand immediately is is uh, for diabetes, um, uh, blood glucose control. Um, there, you, there you also have first um, closed loop um, systems that because you know a tip, in a typical diabetic situation, the patient has to measure uh, their blood sugar on a regular basis and then either take more or less um, insulin, administer more or less insulin, uh, and that's. Uh, you know, a very um, overt process. Um, whereas if you had a closed loop implanted insulin uh, pump, it would measure glucose level continuously in the bloodstream. Uh, and then uh, based on a certain uh, threshold, just automatically uh, administer uh, enough insulin to always keep, keep blood sugar in the desired, uh, at the desired level. Uh, and it would be totally ambient working in the background um, without any necessity for the patient to sort of overtly monitor their own blood sugar and uh, qualitative research uh, with patients in these situations suggests that they would you know highly uh, value such um, systems that work seamlessly work in the background where they, they are not constantly reminded and confronted with uh, with the reality of their disease uh, so these closed loop approaches could also help to sort of improve quality of life, let alone sort of minimize the risk for low blood sugar and related complications and so forth. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great, uh, that's a great example. And, you know, now, you know, as we're talking through the, 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 the kind of the goal of the technologies, I guess, you know, you raised the, the issue of, of kind of data and data management. So, you know, with, uh, with kind of cont current deep brain stimulation, say on the Parkinson's model, what we have is kind of, in a way, we're taking information and we're putting it into the brain, right? It's it's the doctor is making a judgment about what's the right kind of calibration for the device, and then is is accordingly, you know, presumably typing up some keys and and changing the uh, the strength of the stimulation or potentially moving the device around through surgery, and so that's kind of putting information into the brain on the closed loop. Um, system that, that you've been describing, we're taking information out of the brain um, or out of the body and then using that information automatically to, uh, to affect the, the device. And you could even imagine, and maybe this is, maybe we can talk a little bit about this, the, the value of aggregating this information. So in the, in the epilepsy context, you mentioned that the devices were fairly imprecise. And you know that you know I don't, that could be a consequence of, of, of not enough data or not in the right types of models. And one could imagine that if you combine lots and lots and lots of brain data over many 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 people, you could train a much better model um, for for controlling the device. Um, so 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 what are the in terms of, of that kind of data aggregation, what are some of the benefits that you can imagine? And, and I know that you've been thinking about what some of the, um, some of the risks are as well. Yeah, I think um, the risks um, depend a little bit um, uh, on the context because one difference between the sort of open loop situation that you now have in which um, you, know, you observe uh, clinical symptoms or patient's behavior and then set the, uh, the settings of the device accordingly uh, is that you have um, always have some kind of expert or human control. So the neurologist will sort of always have a clinical impression um, of the patient and take the responsibility uh, for whatever settings um, happen, whereas in an automatic um, closed loop um, situation in which you don't have a human in the loop or a human on the loop, 
and we can maybe talk about this difference a little bit because I think it's quite interesting. Um, there you have the situation that's, you know, you may end up with a problem in terms of ascribing causal responsibility uh, for certain actions or outcomes. So consider, for example, the epilepsy patient, uh, if she has uh, a monitoring system that always indicates uh, the level of seizure risk uh, to herself, like through a wristband, and then if it's green, everything is well, and she can ride a bike, and she can climb a ladder. Uh, but if it's uh, orange or red, there seems to be a heightened risk uh, of seizure, and that would impel the person to always maximize uh, their own uh, security uh, or others, uh, other person's security, um, uh, because usually an epileptic uh, patient is oblivious to their to their actual in the moment um, risk um, of, uh, of a seizure. Uh, and so if you keep the human in the loop, you somehow make a processes um, overt through these devices uh, that they would otherwise have no access to, and then they would have an obligation to always behave uh, or maximize um, um, their own security. Uh, whereas if you keep them out of the loop and say, hey, this works seamlessly in the background and there's no uh, outside, uh, outside control, Whatsoever, what happens if, if there's a, a mistake, uh, if the device misreads your brain activity uh, and gives you an electric shock and, and, and an accident happens, uh, either you get injured or another person gets, gets injured, um, how do you deal with the, with the potential accountability gap and causal responsibility gap that arises in these types of sort of hybrid machine interactions? So that's something that we're also looking at when when talk when looking about when talking about the ethics of uh, of neurotechnological devices, um, what is the, the right balance between um, you know um, taking away uh, accountability and responsibility to maximize uh, maybe treatment effects and ha have it that systems are more acceptable uh, for patients versus uh, the potential problem of responsibility gaps, accountability gaps. Hmm. And that might so, also have legal ramifications, actually. So pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, so just to take that, that, that's an interesting example just to kind of keep keep running with. So, you know, so imagine that, that wristwatch now um, versus, um, well, let's just take with the wristwatch that's informing someone. Now, of course, where I thought you were going to go with that actually is the wristwatch you know, it's, it, which is presumably there's a, there's a very complex machine learning type predictive algorithm that's taking all this data, um, you know, measuring the kind of the state of a person's brain and then translating that into a risk proposition that then shows up, you know, red, orange or green on their on their little smartwatch. And then, of course, that could be wrong. Just many different things going on here. So, so it could make an incorrect judgment and you could say green when there actually is high risk. And then the person might jump in a car or get up a ladder and, and hurt themselves or hurt somebody else inadvertently. Uh, of course, we could say orange or red and the person could still jump in the car and go up the ladder. Um, and then we have to decide, you know, what are the thresholds for red, orange and green? And should that be a judgment that the person makes and, and that's a setting that the user can take advantage of? Or is that something that um, is going to be hardwired into the machine uh, that the user doesn't have control over? And then, of course, there's the communication element, right? Does the, what does green mean? What does orange mean? What does red mean? Um, and there's lots of different ways that um, one could describe uh, uh, the, the meaning of these different risk levels to the patient. So, uh, so there's a lot of complicated issues in there. And it seems that 
um, as you say, having having a human in the decision making process, uh, I don't know if it simplifies or makes it more complex or just kind of changes some of those dynamics. Yeah, yeah, it, it depends a little bit um, on the sort of maybe general propensity uh, for for accepting uh, certain risks and also our knowledge uh, um, about the actual risk distribution because there's obviously always um, things that we don't know that could go wrong uh, in such situations where we simply do not have data or experience, uh, sort of uh, the, you know, known unknowns or even unknown unknowns in the sort of Rumsfeldian epistemology. You know, it's funny, <laughs> you know, he's going to be, he's going to be better known as a philosopher than a, uh, yes. than, than a military uh, <laughs> you know, person. Yeah. So. Yeah, case, no, but yes. that's still. I mean, it 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 is a relevant uh, it is a relevant problem. Uh, what do we know uh, about the actual distribution um, of certain risks, um, hazards versus um, just what might what might happen um, uh, imaginatively uh, in these scenarios? Because obviously, obviously, in 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 real life, we allow a, a very large variety of sort of risky uh, behaviors. So consider, for example, driving. Um, so we allow pretty, f pretty wide range of, uh, of um, speeds at which people um, can drive. Uh, and if, if you always drive on the upper speed limit or even slightly above, you're putting yourself and others uh, more at risk uh, being, of being harmed than if you're always driving at moderate speeds and very cautiously. Uh, and so we, we have this sort of certain elasticity in terms of uh, the kinds of risks that we allow people uh, to take. But if you have a very granular and real-time and um, um, system that always indicates um, uh, the actual level of risk that you're at, I think it, it would be a kind of unprecedented um, uh, control that we would um, ask people to exert over their own uh, behavior. Um, or imagine like uh, like if you're driving and you have to decide, am I too tired uh, to still drive? Do I need to uh, do I need to take a break and a, and a quick nap? We leave this uh, responsibility uh, to, to you as an individual. It's not like everybody has a monitoring system, an EG or something like that in the car uh, that alerts you uh, in terms of your level of, of wakefulness, which we could perfectly well do with uh, sensors already today. Like you could fit. Uh, your car and the driver with uh, certain sensors that uh, you know show your blinking rate or like um, other behavioral indicators uh, of sleepiness and tiredness, and then you can have, could have an alert system say you're too tired to drive and you should um, you should take a break. Uh, yet we don't we don't do this, and I wonder if there's there's general reluctance um, to to have such uh, systems that exert very tight behavioral control over things that we that we do yeah you know it's, it's interesting i wonder as a as someone who thinks carefully about the brain and ethics if there's something special about the brain in this context or not so so let me just give a hypo to, to see if i'm just curious what your thoughts are on this so you could imagine two different devices in a car one that um as you said for tiredness monitored your blinking rate or something similar to that um attentiveness or you can imagine a blood alcohol um device in the car that you couldn't actually start the car until you, you know, tested, you know, below a certain blood alcohol level. Um, and, and those would be, you know, observing things in your environment or the car could even, it could even be passive, um, somehow measure your blood alcohol just through your exhalation. And, the, and those would be kind of picking up 
uh, information that's in the environment of the car that your body is just kind of naturally throwing off, as opposed to, say, a device that you put on your head <laughs> that directly pulls information out of your brain, that, that, that observes um, the brain in some direct way, and then, um, you know, and then draws inferences uh, from that. Uh, and you can imagine, let's just, let's just say, just to sharpen it up, that this is an employer um, who is, um, you know, that, and people are driving, you know, this is de for delivery trucks and the employer wants you know, to, to reduce accidents. And so you could have two types of devices, one that just catch information that a person's body naturally throws off and the other one where you require the drivers to put on this headset. Are there any special uh, ethical implications of the headset that we don't have from the from the other you know the other devices the blinking or the blood alcohol level or um, or is it just kind of the same thing and 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 actually doesn't the, the fact that we're monitoring the brain directly isn't necessarily doesn't have a lot of ethical um, implications yeah that's brilliant because that goes directly to the most sort of heated debate that we that we have at this intersection um, neurotechnology, neuroscience, and ethics, and brain data that, that asks um, whether there's something special uh, about brain data that makes them, that make them especially worthy of protection or um, whether we should worry about it in special ways. Because on the one hand, you could say that brain data, the electric, bioelectric activity that's going on in your brain, is the most intimate and most direct correlate um, of what's going on in your head in terms of subjective experience, um, the you know this level of phenomenology, um, the redness of red, um, everything that it that it is uh, like to be in you. We because uh, obviously from the philosophy of mind we have this very tough um, problem of other minds that we do not have direct access to the qualitative um, experiences. That other uh, others have. So just by if you have no behavioral indicators um, like uh, a yawning or blinking rate, or um, you would not know whether somebody is especially tired or not. So what if we now had um, a reliable way to measure a neural, what's called a neural correlate, so brain activity that correlates with an interior state of mind. Um, and this is an important um, point maybe for the listeners that um, all of neuroscience, even the most sophisticated uh, techniques that we have today, whether it's measuring electric brain activity or neuroimaging, whether we're measuring blood flow related signals, it is still all uh, correlation based um, analysis. So it's not, not, not like that we can sort of measure directly uh, things like thoughts, uh, propositional uh, thoughts or things that are going on subjectively in your head. So we have to rely in some sense um, um, on the correlation between certain measurements uh, and certain behaviors. Uh, and so some people say, okay, brain data are the closest thing that we have uh, in terms of getting at subjective experience that has no accompanying behavioral um, indicators, um, whereas others might say, well, we give off uh, so much um, um, information about our internal states um, by everything that we do, by our um, bio biological signals like your heart rate, your skin conductance, the way you move or don't move, um, 
plus now the sort of digital data trails that we leave um, uh, uh, behind, the digital exhaust that we produce from, from smartphones, from other digital technologies that we use, um, that brain data is not really that special uh, when it comes to being able to make inferences on somebody's mental state or subjective experience. And these are basically the two positions that you will find um, in, this, uh, in this debate. And a lot of it, and uh, whether or not we go in one or the other direction, uh, has a lot of consequences because this will influence the way in which we think about um, like if a company like Facebook now um, has a program uh, for collecting people's um, brain data uh, from devices that they develop, should we be concerned about how these uh, data are governed, uh, accessed, stored and used by Facebook? Or can we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, these are just another uh, type um, of data um, in addition to everything else that we give to these companies anyway? And there's no special requirement uh, and we do not need to especially worry about brain data. Very, very interesting debate that goes all the way up to, um, you know, um, discussions now at the UNESCO, um, uh, OECD and United Nations that are talking about neurotechnologies and precisely this question. Yeah, no, it's, it's and you can imagine kind of the, 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 the conclusion cutting both ways. So you... So say someone decides that upon reflection, well, you know, that, that brain data isn't special. So maybe that means no big deal. We can just treat brain data the way we treat, um, you know, other forms of information that's collected. Or they could say, wait a second. <laughs> Actually, right now, Facebook is collecting so much information on us and that, you know, the, with, with, with machine learning and the, and the ability to make these really accurate measurements, um, even with a webcam, uh, it's like they're looking inside my brain, and maybe I should be more concerned about about data privacy for for regular kinds of data, right? So you could actually imagine um, uh, people make drawing different conclusions, normative conclusions from the uh, you know from this comparison of, of direct brain data versus uh, you know whatever other kinds of data might be collected on us. Yeah, and I think what we really also need to think about uh, conceptually, and this is not only relevant i think for brain data but for for all uh data that that allow for for inferences uh, on us as as beings and as persons is this distinction between you know data and information and the difference between data privacy and informational privacy uh, because those might have very different ramifications because um, you might have um, data that in isolation like if you if i took an eg measurement from you now uh, a brain activity measurement from you now and had zero contextual information, no metadata uh, about your uh, you know, age, gender, uh, anything, uh, it would be pretty hard to infer anything uh, from these data because their spatial temporal frequency resolution is not very good. No? So I couldn't read your thoughts, I could make almost zero inferences on, on your identity in any meaningful way. but at any point in which you bring together um, um, contextual data, data from different sources, uh, it becomes much more interesting because then you can sort of uh, uh, bring together um, very different uh, types of data and make multi-model data analysis that you know, allow you to make very far-reaching um, inferences or predictive models. So I think uh, one challenge is really uh, to ask ourselves, what are we act actually protecting here? 
Uh, do we want to protect data in the way it is moved and, and governed? Or are we protecting information about a person uh, and information that can be gleaned from data? Because those might be very different um, in very different scenarios. So one example, uh, or, or one distinction uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of, of the governance question here is also because you have, on the one hand, you have you know, data, the data creator, uh, so a company that makes a measurement, creates data about you, and then comes the question of data ownership, like because the data is about you, because it is from your brain activity, are you the natural owner um, of these data about you, or is actually the, the company um, uh, that measured the data from you, are they the owner uh, of the data and hence perhaps the information about you or can those two notions be dissociated to say the company owns the data but you're, uh, uh, you have privileged um, rights over how information is gleaned from these data and so you're in a sense your ownership is, is more about the information about yourself than, than about the data uh, because you can say yeah well even if, if you're not the creator of the data, even if you're not the owner of the information about yourself, you might still have legitimate interests um, in the ways in which this information is uh, is used about you. Um, so imagine if, uh, for example, footage from CCTV cameras, um, mm. if you're walking around in a city, you're not creating these data because the data come from the CCTV, you're most likely also not the owner of the data because you're just accidentally walking into the frame. Um, uh, but if CCTV footage uh, of a crime or some other situation was published and you would be identifi and identifiable in the image uh, and maybe it, you know, it, puts, uh, uh, it produces problems in terms of reputation or your employer will say, oh, I, saw your picture, uh, uh, I saw your picture in the newspaper and it was about some crime uh, and you get associated with it, um, you might well have legitimate interest uh, interests um, in, in the way in which information about you is used in the public space or in whatever context. And so differentiating all these different levels can perhaps help to build um, more accurate or, or, or practical um, governance um, models for these, for these data. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And, you know, uh, the, the, the CCTV example is, a, is an interesting one. I mean, I think that in, in U.S., Law, uh, a lot of that, just as it, as things currently stand, if you're standing in a public space like a street, you know you you're putting your you know you're throwing off data in a sense, and then yeah. that that's available to other people. You know that you know if I'm in a in Times Square walking around, you know thousands of other people can see me, and uh, that's just that's just a reality that that if I want to go to Times Square, <laughs> you know I have to accept. Um, but of course, all of our intuitions, all of our moral intuitions and ethical intuitions and our legal system, for the most part, kind of grew up in a context where it was ephemeral. That wasn't stored. To the extent that, that it was stored, it was stored in people's memories, which are really terrible records. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people aren't paying attention. They forget things. Um, you can challenge someone's memory if you want. And we've moved to a situation where now you're throwing off this data that can be stored in a very... Uh, a very reliable format um, and then retrieved and searched. And so, you know, I think a lot of our institutions and even in, um, intuitions just don't fit very well with this, with this new context.
I think that's an extremely interesting point. When you were uh, talking about the public uh, aspect, I also thought that it's also, in a sense, a question of, of uh, freedom, because when you're walking around in a public space, you can still choose to wear a mask, for example. Uh, and, and people might come up to you and say, hey, dude, why are you wearing a mask? This is strange, like I don't like it. Uh, and then you can argue with these people. Uh, but if you have um, constant surveillance, CCTV, and then maybe facial recognition algorithms, um, basically, uh, the question will arise, do people have the fundamental right to conceal their identity if they don't want to be tracked? So uh, um, is it legitimate uh, to deploy uh, countermeasures against automatic facial recognition systems by, for example, having some kind of luminescent um, cosmetics on your face that irritate the, the system or something like that, um, or even a mask. Um, so I think we'll see more and more of these, um, um, of these debates or even maybe legal cases in which people um, uh, prefer not to be tracked um, uh, in public spaces. And then yeah. the question will, will arise, uh, does the state or whoever operates the system have legitimate ground um, to track people indiscriminately um, uh, without um, a due cause? Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because one could imagine different, um, different countries, different cultures coming to very different answers on those questions. And in in Europe and the U.S. and, you know, China and Japan and Brazil might or Singapore might land in different places. Um, one one question, um, or just to kind of you know change gears just just slightly is, so you you've written um, you, about the kind of special ethical issues um, at this interface of you know kind of AI and neurotechnology, and you've identified kind of what I take to be four special values or um, kind of particular concerns: um, privacy, identity, agency, and equality. And um, all of those are very complex uh, concepts. So maybe just to get us started to, to think about um, these questions. So one, uh, just, maybe just we'll start with this. Why those four? What, what, what's special about those four vis-a-vis -vis the technologies that we've been talking about? Yeah, yeah I think it's um, having, uh, considering different dimensions is important because neurotechnologies, um, something like brain-computer interfaces, consumer neurotechnologies from companies and so forth, they might affect um, people, um, so individuals, they might affect groups, they might affect populations or have even effects on a, on a sort of societal level uh, that play out very differently and so you have to address ethical concerns uh, that are specific to certain levels and as, but also ethical concerns that, that transcend um, sort of uh, different, different levels. So one example um, is the notion of agency. Uh, this is a very personal um, notion, something that, that extends mostly to, uh, to individuals. And that would be the, the typical example is, what if you had a, a deep brain stimulation or other type of neurostimulation, for example, that interfered um, somehow with your with your sense of agency or with your uh, with you as as the author of of actions. Um, so if you had a hybrid implantable brain computer interface that would operate, um, uh, for example, some device, uh, and you cannot be sure anymore 
is the action uh, that is being taken, am I the author of the action, or, or is it the algorithm um, or the AI part um, of the device that is taking decisions for me? Uh, so hybrid decision, hybrid situations of, um, of agency. And this very much um, you know, geared toward this, the level of individual ethics or what I would call microethics, um, basically. But neurotechnologies, if they are introduced on a large scale and if they become a technological reality uh, in society, might have um, other ramifications. I mean, consider the, the example of smartphones, for example. Smartphones can have um, um, bad effects uh, for the individual users uh, because they are, uh, you know, they can lead to habit formation, uh, even addiction, and people might get addicted to, uh, to their smartphones or they run into a lamppost because they're only staring at the screen anymore. So these are um, um, bad, maybe intended or unintended effects um, on individual users. Uh, but smartphone use um, on a larger scale, say for example in, in children or adolescents uh, or groups that have specific vulnerabilities, may create um, other ethical problems in that they make, um, you know, it, it's in that they put certain groups um, that are vulnerable in certain ways at risk. For example, people with mental health problems, again, children or elderly people. Uh, and so you have to also consider um, questions of, of access, um, equity, uh, equality in terms of um, usage of these technologies. Uh, and it's just, whether it's for smartphones, um, for computers, for the web, for social media, or now with other emerging technologies like, like neurotechnologies, like virtual reality, um, I think it's important to, to address ethical questions at the level of individuals, but also groups, populations, and, um, and maybe whole societies. Uh, and, and that would be my sort of vision for, uh, for ethics, because traditionally ethics understood in a sort of very rigid normative way, and maybe you know, whether you have a principalist approach, a utilitarian approach, or whatever approach you're taking, is often focused very much on the individual. Uh, and not so much on, on um, larger scale issues like uh, consequences for society, distributive justice, uh, and things like that. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I, I want to return back to the agency question because I, I personally find that super interesting. But just to stay on this um, kind of group uh, level versus individual level um, ethical reasoning, one of the things that strikes me as a, as a potential challenge with the, with the group level uh, analysis is not that it's not normatively important, just that it's very difficult to uh, tease out the consequences or to think about the consequences because you know groups, especially human societies, are very complex systems that are have very difficult to predict. So just to take the smartphone example that you described, so you know we can think about the individual, yeah, texting while driving, um, becoming addicted, but on you know those are some of the costs. But on the other hand, um, being able to you know be in touch. Uh, with their family or, you know, reducing parental anxiety because they're able to be in touch with their kids or, or you know, kind of pros and cons. But but then, there, you know, you could say something like, so in the U.S. in the last um, couple of years, there's been a, you know, a very substantial conversation and, and political discourse around, uh, around race, around policing, the Black Lives Matter movement and so on. And that political movement, in a way, one could argue, at least I think, was very much technologically driven uh, because you had a, a, 
videos essentially of police violence uh, that people took, you know, because they had ready access to a to a camera or to a video um, device because it, it's sitting in their pockets. And then, of course, the video spread uh, via the internet and and social media platforms and so on. And ultimately, that leads to a a social movement and a broader conversation that extends beyond. Actually, it's very important with respect to policing, but also extends beyond policing um, to lots of areas of American life. So, so. So, so if we think back to the kind of cell phones as a technology, we could, we could, in theory, in principle, it would make sense for us if we're reasoning about their ethical implications to take into account those types of social phenomena because they are a consequence of the widespread adoption of, of cell phones. But it strikes me as just extraordinarily difficult to anticipate those types of effects, um, especially over a kind of a medium term. So. So what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is it, you know, is it, is it just to say, well, we shouldn't throw up our hands, we should do our best, or uh, maybe there are certain classes of social level effects that we should try to anticipate, but not others? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a super tough uh, problem of technology governance uh, in general, that um, especially the long-term unintended consequences um, of technologies can remain hidden for a very long um, time. Uh, so since you're I think uh, also working environmentalist um, um, law, or take environmentalism as a um, as a as an example. Take uh, petrochemical processing, right. for example, or take crude oil processing, like the oil barons of the 1900s, and then there was petrochemical processing, and from petrochemical processing we 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 had plastics, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and plastics uh, now became then became the dominant. Uh, um, form or you know storing things super convenient um, um, material uh, for countless applications but now we have a pervasive problem of microplastic pollution um, of the environment um, of the seas uh, and now uh, could um, the scientists the petrochemical engineers um, the experts of the 1900s could they have foreseen um, environment, environmental pollution from microplastics um, of the oceans or the, the big uh, plastic garbage patch in the Pacific in, say, 1850 or, or 1870? Uh, and then the answer is probably no. No way. Uh, probably right. not yeah. so much. Yeah. yeah. But then on the other hand, like we had a couple of years ago, we had the anniversary of uh, Alexander von Humboldt, the great sort of naturalist, uh, an explorer and, um, and there's this wonderful book called The Invention of Nature about his life and then when you look at his at his writings when he was traveling um, uh, in South America um, he was already talking about the detrimental effects of deforestation um, of monocultures uh, and stuff like that so in a sense um, um, I think it's extremely hard to do these long-term uh, forecastings and um, uh, risk assessment and so what you what you need to do I think is, can only be a lot of sort of interdisciplinary research exploration and going precisely uh, to those to those areas where we know very little so to look uh, in, in the sense of horizon scanning and um, really free exploration to and, and imaginative um, exercises uh, to look at um, or imagine potential hazards, long-term consequences, and chain of events, 
uh, that might even lie outside our usual uh, our usual experiences um, to be able to to have more anticipatory and um, um, you know technology governance um, framework but I but I worry that this is as technologies become more and more complex, consider quantum technology, consider AI, consider genetic engineering, I worry that this becomes even maybe a futile or, or incredibly difficult and complex um, um, problem, uh, the pacing problem of technology governance um, um, amplified basically, uh, because uh, it becomes more and more difficult uh, to do accurate forecasting, horizon scanning. So maybe in the end, what we will need to do is to even use machine learning approaches, data-driven approaches, AI approaches um, for, uh, for assessing um, risks in complex scenarios. So there's already this whole area of regulatory technologies, rec tech, um, that are like in the financial sector, for example, that use algorithms uh, to predict financial risks in markets and so forth. Uh, um, so because there you also have this risk of maybe like you know unintended and unanticipated um, sudden system collapses uh, because you have or you have things like collusive algorithms in pricing, for example, where two algorithms that have the same goal um, in terms of what set prices they want to achieve at the market can suddenly behave and coordinate um, and move in the same direction in a sort of collusive way even though that's a little bit anthropomorphizing um, but it, it is a real problem what if you have um, a complex system uh, that you cannot understand um, anymore and so maybe we, we will need to rely on on machine learning approaches that can explore parameter spaces that we're just incapable um, of exploring with our sort of data processing and knowledge processing capabilities. Yeah, that we have. I mean, there's also institutional questions. So again, just to take the environmental example, um, you know, like a, with fossil fuels, uh, there, there are there are other negative consequences beyond uh, beyond plastics pollution, of course, climate change. And we've known about climate change for decades, um, yeah. uh, the risk of climate change. And so it's not a question of our ability to anticipate what's going on in the system, even though the climate system is, is, is fairly complex and then there's a you know, fair amount of uncertainty. But we do know that human generated greenhouse gas emissions lead to temperature change, which will likely lead to lots of bad consequences and are already having bad consequences. And yet uh, we still dig up you know massive amounts of coal and uh, and burn it and, and, and make greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, among other sources. And so, um, so even if we, when, even in cases where we are able to anticipate the negative consequences um, of our decisions, our institutions don't seem to be uh, all that capable of responding. So that's a whole other, uh, whole other difficult challenge uh, in these kinds of governance questions. Yeah, I mean, one, one way or one stance that is, um, of course, can be taken is a sort of precautionary um, approach um, to governing emerging sciences and technology. I think this played out, you can see this uh, historically very well in the different responses to uh, genetically modified organisms that the US uh, took versus, uh, versus Europe. So when it comes to introducing GMOs into um, 
into food chains uh, and agriculture. Uh, the US uh, took a sort of little bit more risk-based and, and sort of liberal approach, um, whereas the Europe for a long time took a very strong precautionary stance, say no GMOs until we understand the long-term uh, impact that this has on complex um, uh, agricultural systems or nature, uh, such if you will. Uh, but that, then the argument, you know, Cass Sandstein, laws yep. of fear and so forth, uh, is always that this stifles um, innovation and that this uh, actually reduces our capability uh, to respond to crises um, through technological innovation. Uh, and I accept that uh, as, a, as an argument also. Uh, but I think we, we need to also maybe check a little bit or keep this tendency and check a little bit more towards what I you know, sometimes call technological solutionism, uh, the propensity to always look uh, uh, to technology to solve complex problems in the, in the social realm. Um, so in medicine, you see this, you know, you have a problem, maybe you have too little um, care professionals um, in, in uh, elderly care facilities. And so what people think now is say, oh, let's build care robots that can, uh, that can help us uh, solve this problem. Uh, uh, rather than saying, uh, oh, we value human interaction as a basic tenet of, of care, uh, and it's an important tenet of human-to-human -human care, and therefore let us restructure uh, the system in such a way uh, that care work uh, is incentivized um, more uh, by, you know, maybe um, you know, uh, uh, paying right. uh, people who are car caring right. for our elderly and for our children the same um, as we pay doctors and, and, and maybe CEOs and other professionals or so. Um, and this is, this is a social question, there's a political question, and it's nothing, not a situation that necessarily uh, needs to be solved by, by technological innovation, but it, is reflect, it reflects uh, in a way our own priorities um, um, as a society. Yeah, I mean, it, it, one possible explanation for this might be um, and we see this in the context of climate change uh, and many, many social issues is kind of a technological optimism. And at least in the domains that I'm familiar with, I, what I take that to be is people give up on politics. They give up on the possibility of having, um, of making progress on social questions like, you know, how do we appropriately incentivize care versus other, you know, consumer kind of activities or, you know, should we put a price on carbon and what should that price look like? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you when people don't make progress on those questions over a, a frustratingly long time horizon, they say, well, we're not going to do it's not going to happen politically. So maybe somebody will come along and invent some wonderful clean energy technology or invent some wonderful care robot that will um, help will allow us to avoid having those difficult uh, political conversations. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a, a really super interesting, but also slightly depressing uh, topic, uh, sort of uh, it, to channel Fukuyama uh, here, the end of politics, if you will, uh, to say that we might enter uh, an, an age in which technocracy, uh, you know, uh, um, governing societies by technological means um, might might become the more effective or only um, only option because I think that I mean that's a pretty accurate description of, of what what is happening in many many domains but um, on the other hand you can see already I think in some societies that are that are taking uh, 
this approach um, in terms of like social engineering or using technology as a tool for surveillance, social control and political control, um, that this um, tends to erode you know, a lot of the basic tenets of liberal democracy, fundamental rights um, and achievements uh, that we treasure since the Enlightenment basically and that we hold up as, um, as a until now actually quite, uh, quite successful model. But I worry as well whether, whether liberal democracy in the political process as it, is, as it, has, as it has developed uh, um, until now is really set up to meet the, uh, the complexity um, and the complex um, governance demands that uh, these technologies now put on us and, and large-scale problems like climate change. Um, and, uh, but it might also be a very problematic, vicious, um, uh, self-fulfilling cycle in which if you decry uh, the end of politics and, uh, and people's trust in, in the process and in... Uh, and democratic legitimacy and democratic processes uh, gets eroded um, and institutions like the press uh, and so forth um, uh, and science uh, are less and less trusted. I wonder if, if this could also lead to runaway effects um, in the sense that, um, uh, I mean, there's these, in political science now, these, you know, I don't know, maybe the book like How Democracy Ends, that is precisely how it, how it might end in that... Um, Trust as a central uh, cohesive element um, uh, for for liberal democracies um, um, is eroded and to such a degree that it that leads to a large scale crisis. Not only interpersonal trust, uh, but only trust also trust in institutions, uh, trust in elites, uh, trust in science, trust in technology. If this is all um, questioned and going away, um, I too worry that we that we might. Um, have a bigger problem on the horizon that we know than we now realize. Yeah, well, that's definitely depressing. So let's not let's not end on that. <laughs> so, so, so just to, just to maybe yeah. return for one final question. I'm and just to use this as an example. Maybe I'm trying to think of this as an example of how to reason about like hard questions at the interface of technology and the brain and, and normative issues. So just returning to that agency question, where um, you can imagine a device. Um, that is that hooked into someone such that it ultimately uh, it presents this question of you know uh, to, to what degree am I responsible for this decision versus this device or whatever it kind of it, it problematizes this this notion of human agency and and you can imagine all types of examples of this like for example I might um, you know have an obesity problem and decide that you know there, there's a device out there that can be used to suppress my hunger right and then down the road, you know, I, I lose some weight, I, I get in better shape, and I, and you know, maybe I'm feeling good about myself um, for accomplishing this goal. But then I say, oh well, I'm not really responsible for it. I can't really take credit for it. It's not me that did this. Or, um, or maybe a person who's prone to violence decides that you know they don't want to go to jail and that, you know they don't want to hurt people, um, but they they recognize that they can act impulsively, and so they have a device that's put in place that. Um, you know that, that that gives them a moment of reflection that suppresses uh, you know certain impulsive behavior um, and subjects it to executive functioning or something like that. Um, I mean, are these because they they problematize the notion of agency? Are they automatically bad, um, or 
uh, or is it just kind of we should give them special consideration, but then what does that special consideration look like? Like how do we reason through uh, the set of problems that, that or the set of issues that, that might arise uh, kind of out of this question of, of agency and, and, and neurotechnology? Yeah. So what I think, uh, what is useful about these, uh, about, uh, in thinking about these um, situations or potential uh, potential situations like um, technological control of uh, of violent behavior, it's a perfect perfect example. And this is, has been a long tenet in sort of neurotechnology development. In fact, the proto uh, type, the first types of um, electrical brain stimulators by Jose Delgado, a Spanish researcher, were demonstrated by putting them in the in the brain of a, or in the head of a bull, and then having the bull charge the researcher, and then you would press a button and. Uh, and the bull would sort of go to the side instead of uh, running over the researcher. Um, highly, um, um, you know, problematic in many ways, uh, especially since people are a little bit skeptical whether he sort of actually, well, whether this was sort of actually brain-based or whether he sort of just uh, stimulated muscles of the and, and turned him uh, to the left or to the right. Anyhow, so this this uh, this is real. This is real um, concern. But what I think what this illustrate these cases illustrate. Uh, is um, that they make us think about how, what we value about uh, uh, human existence uh, and what kind of approach uh, we want to take uh, to human technology interactions. Because if you take a utilitarian approach, um, utility-based approach, you could say, yeah, uh, whatever agency, uh, nice to have, but um, if this person um, is actually um, can do better in the world um, with this device. I don't care about uh, the authorship uh, over actions or who's causally responsible uh, for certain actions, as long as on the on the aggregate and on average, uh, this leads to better outcome uh, for the for the people. Whereas uh, if you have a, another anthropological view or if you have another other ethical framework, um, Kantian framework or dignity-based approach, um, you could say, well agency um, uh, being the author of our own actions is a fundamental uh, prerequisite for exercising our autonomy as humans as, as human agents and so um, putting that into question or making this an, uh, uh, an uncertain situation in close human technology interactions might actually undermine um, uh, our dignity or might erode basic um, anthropological ten tenets of human uh, of human existence, and therefore it's um, it, it should be rejected on ethical grounds. So it ultimately forces us to think a little bit about uh, um, our own presumptions, our own ethical framework, uh, with which we um, view uh, human technology interactions. So I think um, for that alone, uh, these uh, examples and real examples um, uh, are really useful uh, for. Uh, for clarifying uh, what kind of stance we want to take um, uh, in terms of uh, how we want humans to interact with technology. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an incredibly fascinating uh, set of questions. I, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. It was a really fun conversation. Uh, wonderful. Thanks so much, Mike. I could talk uh, uh, much more about this, and we sure will uh, in, in uh, future meetings with the ICA. Mm -hmm.